The following podcast is brought to you by Babe Media. I'm Emma Clark. And I'm Kelsey Burdett. You know those people you follow that just seem to get it? They have the Instagram content that you actually watch. They own the brands that you just can't stop buying from. And they tell the stories you actually remember. The kinds of people that leave you wondering, how do they do that? Well, we follow them too. And we have the exact same question. Join us as we interview the people that leave us thinking, oh, they get it. Hello, everybody. We are in for a treat today. Let me tell you, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Ayla Morin, who was one of the, actually, she was the first marketing hire at Majuri, which we all know and love. And now she is the Senior Vice President of Brand and Innovation at Merit. I hope I got that title right. It's a long one. And so she has been behind building two absolutely iconic brands in the women's lifestyle space, obviously Majuri, with their beautiful jewelry that they try to make it more accessible and try to create this notion of gifting yourself and treating yourself, which I love. And then she joined forces with Catherine Power at Merit, which we've seen just absolutely blow up since their launch about a year ago. And so today we chatted through with her, not only her journeys at both of these brands and her incredible marketing skills, but also we heard her starting story, how she made decisions early on in her career. So much good stuff. I, I hope you look out for a couple of things. Number one her starting story and some of the the things that could be perceived as setbacks, but instead how she used those as like launch pads to actually get further ahead and to think um, in a different way that's helpful and all of this stuff. Anyways, just like incredible storytelling there. And then the other thing that I'm sitting here like in awe as I'm listening to her is understanding how old she was when she was talking about all these stories and what she was able to accomplish at such a young age. For anyone out there listening, if you have struggled to find your path in life, if you're struggling because you think you're too young to do whatever it is that you want to do, this episode is going to fire you up to not listen to what's holding you back. Completely. Completely. And the other piece I really love is the thing she looks out for um, when she's choosing a lot of her roles, especially with Missouri and Merit, was the leaders she was working for. Oh. And obviously, the founders of both of those companies are huge inspirations to both of us. And so listen out for that as well. The things that she looks for beyond just a good product that makes her choose where she makes her career moves. So much good advice. Let's just get oh into gosh. it. Yeah, let's do it. All right, everybody, let me tell you about our sponsor this week, Neo Financial. Neo Financial essentially helps your money go further. So what you do, you open an account, you can add it to your Google or Apple Pay, and you get instant cash back at your favorite stores. And I'm talking like any store. We're talking shoppers, we're talking Costco, Walmart, the big retailers, but also places you probably love to shop already, like Holt Renfrew, Frank and Oak, Lululemon, Simons, Zara, Aritzia, and not to mention so many other small businesses and female-founded brands, which you know we love here. There's also no annual or monthly fees on the card. You get one of Canada's highest interest rates with the Neo Savings account. 
and it's accepted everywhere MasterCard is accepted. So you get a minimum cashback guarantee of 1%, but what you'll find is with a lot of the brands they work with, that cashback is actually higher. So it really just makes sense if you're looking to make your money go further, get discounts on things you're already buying, um, and there's really no downside. So we will include a link in the description of this episode. And if you sign up using that link, you will get a $50 cashback bonus when you sign up. So go check out Mio again if you are Canadian and enjoy. We are back with another episode. Today, we have Ayla Morin with us. She is the Senior Vice President of Brand Growth and Innovation at Merit. And previously, she was the first marketing hire at Missouri and grew up their incredible marketing strategy. So Ayla, thank you so much for being here today. We're so excited to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me. So where to begin? I mean, you've had an incredible career so far. You've worked at two of the most like quintessential D2C brands for women, or I guess not even D2C, they're omni-channel, but just incredible brands that you've had such a huge part in building. So take us back to the beginning. How did you start off your career that got you to where you are today? Yeah. So I had a bit of an untraditional start. I actually um, grew up in a really small town north of Toronto and was obsessed with fashion and beauty as a kid, like was buying Vogue, Vogue magazines as a child, which was very strange when you're five or six years old. I love um, that. And I actually started working in beauty when I was 15. Um, I got a job. There's a shopper's drug mart where I grew up. And there was a new beauty boutique with like Lancome, Smashbox, Biotherm. And they hired me to do the gift wrapping for a gala event they were hosting. So I was like gift wrapping behind the actual cash wrap on the floor. And then they were short staffed. So they hired me as a beauty expert. And I really didn't know anything about beauty, obviously, at that age, but it was an incredible learning opportunity for me because I, you know, learned the basics of skincare and makeup and sales, but more importantly, just learned about the relationship that people have with their routines. And I did that from four to midnight after high school, all the way through to kind of fund my love of shopping, even at a young age. And then actually when I went into university, I kept doing it. So that was kind of my side hustle for a very long time. And I just absolutely loved the job. And then I took some time off before I went to university. I signed a modeling contract when I was 16, was horrible at it, just an absolutely <laughs> terrible model. And I decided to defer school and that's what I was going to pursue. So I did you know, I did a few shoots, realized it was absolutely not for me. I have a lot of respect for people who are great at it because it is not easy. And then I took time off, went to Europe, kind of bounced around and tried to figure out what I wanted in life and then ended up at U of T and I was studying international relations and wasn't loving it. Most of my classes were in convocation hall, which if you've been to U of T, it sits like 2000 people. Yeah. It's in that, um, it's in the episode of Mean Girls where they're <laughs> at the math league Literally. competition. Oh yeah. my gosh. I didn't know that. Yeah. It just wasn't for me. And I think, you know, I took one sociology course and I really liked it and mm -hmm. I liked it because it was about understanding patterns and trends and people. And that was a lot more interesting to me. So I actually transferred to the university of British Columbia in my second year switched majors to sociology, mm. and then studied that all the way through for the next three years. And that was really my foundation for marketing, although I didn't know that at the time because it's right. not really what you think is a natural connection. But that's when I started to feel like I really got something. I 
struggled in grade school and university was the first time that I could find a way to learn that worked for me. So what I started to figure out more importantly than the topic I was learning is that I had the ability through mnemonics to essentially memorize the textbook. And that's how I started to figure out like learning massive amounts of information quickly. Can you break that down? Like, what does that actually look like in practice and how did you apply it to life? So basically it's a multi-level mnemonic. So what I would do is I would write bullet notes and like color code them. Like everybody else loved a highlighter back then when we were still, you know, writing out notes. (laughs) And I would, um, the first like letter of every major point I would bold. And then I would arrange those letters into the first word. So your first word might only be like, it could be a sentence. It could be a word. It'd be like eight to 12 letters. And then each of those letters, you would remember the point. So let's say it was like one of the points of World War II. And then under that, you would have another series of eight to 12 letters. So every word like expanded into more words. And then what I found is if I could memorize the mnemonic, I could memorize all of the content. And that was like my, it's the first time that I think I really started to figure out that so much of work and learning for me was based on figuring out how to retain information, which is different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's how I, it just became something that I naturally started to learn and figure out. And that has really benefited me. And and I honestly, that's what I got from school more than anything else. Like you learn Mm -hmm. content, sure. But what I learned was how to learn. Amazing. Okay. So you finish up university, you finish up your degree in sociology, then what happens? So I was going to go to law school. That was the plan. Um, Like every Bachelor of Arts (laughs) recipient, (laughs) that is the next step. This was also this was also the time when suits yes. was like yeah. all the rage. So everyone that was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. They saw Harvey Specter and they're like, okay, it's going to be. Like- it was actually Meghan Markle's outfits. I was very into the fashion at the time. Yeah, yes, <laughs> super into that. But I I had a few options. So basically, when I graduated, I had to support myself, and I'd been you know supporting myself through university by working at Shoppers Drug Mart and doing you know just a bunch of different roles in beauty, and then. When I graduated, I got a few different job offers. And I always preface this by saying I applied to like literally hundreds of jobs. I still have, there were like 550 applications total. So the first thing I'll say is that to get jobs out of university was a grind and a hustle. And I think people need to know that there is way more rejection at first than there is actually getting offers. But I got a few different offers. One was to work in language translation my French is not that good. I just had a good interview. So (laughs) I wasn't feeling very confident about that. The second was at the Bay in Vancouver to manage the Shiseido counter. So it was a great job. It was managing a pretty big team because I had all this experience and I love beauty and I've always loved Shiseido. They obviously make incredible products. And then the third job, which paid like not even half of what the Shiseido job paid was a marketing coordinator role at a new brand. And at the time I, you know, sent in my application and no one responded. Finally, I got an interview after just basically not leaving them alone for two months. And I brought to my interview basically an assessment of their social media performance. And it was like a 50 page document on what I thought they could do better. And the important thing is back then, like this is Instagram had just launched. This is like the beginning mm-hmm. of yeah, social media. Exactly. Influencers weren't really a thing. Like blogs still existed. There were a few YouTubers, but yeah. I had been super influenced by watching YouTubers and kind of reading actual blogs. Like, you know, when people had separate sites, which sounds wild to say today. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, I noticed at shoppers that people would come in asking for stuff that they saw on the internet, which sounds like that's how we all shop now. Back then it was very different and revolutionary. And Mm -hmm. I did this whole assessment of how I thought they could be better at social. 
and they hired me and it was a great first job. I, you know, lived in this tiny studio apartment after I paid rent, I had like no money left over because Vancouver was so expensive at the time. And it was just a great place to start because there were very few kind of guidelines and rules because social media marketing was brand Mm. new. So when I joined, I started influencer marketing and started growing their social channels. And that's when I had the first influencer marketing event. So I like hired an influencer. I think she had 5,000 followers to host an event at a coffee shop. That was big back Mm -hmm. then. To sell bags. And that was like unheard of. That was like, Mm -hmm. and I actually modeled it after the celebrity meet and greet because I was like, you know, if, if someone like Rihanna can go in and draw in a crowd that, you know, lasts for hours and hours, could I get someone with only 5,000 followers to come in and draw in a crowd that would at least kind of give us a few sales? So I did that job. It was for a, a brand that had bags um, with chargers in them. There were some tech issues. There were all kinds of growth issues. Um, and then I <laughs> started up classic yeah. startup. And then I bounced to another startup. Yeah. I was there for a while. There wasn't good product market fit. And that was like the biggest mm-hmm. lesson I learned is that you cannot you can't force a product on the market. How people respond to it the first time is how they'll continue to respond to it. And that is the most important part of any brand. Then I actually went back to that startup. And then at that point, they named me a director of marketing. So I was 23 when I started running my first full marketing team of eight people. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And I was (laughs) completely unprepared to be clear. Um, The the people management side of it at that age is very difficult because you have to mature so quickly emotionally in terms of how you react, how you manage people, what you take personally. So I learned a lot really quickly. And then after that, and I, that business also wasn't doing well. So I feel like it's so important because people are always like, you know, Missouri is a unicorn and Merit's doing so well. And I'm like, to be clear, (laughs) most startups fail. And I think that's a reality that no one really likes to talk about, but they do. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. You go out and you try again, but it was not always this like shiny best in class career. And then I joined Missouri. So I moved from, I knew I wanted to move back from Vancouver to Toronto. And mm-hmm. I flew to Toronto. I interviewed for like eight different companies. Again, I took the role that was the lowest paying at the time, the mm-hmm. youngest company, but I was the most passionate about. So when mm-hmm. I joined, there were about five of us and I was the first marketing hire. And it was just an incredible experience. So Nora and Majid, who are the founders, are some of the most innovative, smart people I've ever met in my entire career. And yeah. I just learned so much about kind of both sides of the business that I currently run. So that's where I learned, you know, P&L management, good business practices, scaling a business rapidly, cash management, budgeting and marketing. And then under that, because new categories were opening up constantly, like Facebook ads started when I was in marketing. It was like a brand new concept. So I launched our Facebook ad strategy and then was working on our organic social and then our influencer marketing and then kept launching net new strategies as new technology came available. So it was incredibly amazing timing because as every new platform launched, I would kind of learn it, master it, and then coach a team that would then execute it. Um, Mm -hmm. So by the time I left, my actual team of direct reports was 18 people. Wild. Yeah. So I went from executing to building to coaching. And then the other side of my role that still exists today is that there's kind of this, <laughs> the left brain side and then the creative brand storytelling side. So mm-hmm. a lot of my work at Missouri was very much, you know, focused on the story of challenging norms around jewelry and gifting. So, and things that sound so kind of mainstream now, but we're not even a few years ago. So piercing yeah. parties, I concepted that and hosted our first piercing party at the Bumble Hive in Toronto. 
Um, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. I'm not sure if you guys remember yeah. that. It was a few years ago. Oh, but yeah. I do remember And the line it. was like hours and hours long. It was absolute chaos. Yeah. And that's how we learned people want piercings. <laughs> um, and we were always just trying things. We did that. Um, you know, we opened so many stores and pop-ups through innovative ways. Like there was a, I had this vision of a marching band in Chicago to march around the bean playing Kanye West, because that just felt really organic and like buzzy. Um, I remember, I remember seeing that. that. Yeah. And, and little things that I kind of enjoyed. So like Nadine Jane, who's this incredible astrologer, when we launched our Zodiac collection, we had her come and do readings and those events sell out. They were like hundreds and hundreds of people will come to hear her speak I believe about that. annual horoscopes. Yeah. And this was again, before horoscopes became really mainstream and popular. Like there was no TikTok where my entire for you page right now is people being like Mercury retrograde is ending. Things are getting better. Yes. You're a Leo rising, <laughs> but this was that prior and to the tarot card yes. love readings. This was meant for you today. Yes. You're like, okay. Um, <laughs> like you're right. It's so, it's so true. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's always been a blend of art and science. So like, and, and studying my own behavior. So I am my best focus group because I've always been obsessed with shopping. I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. like a, mm-hmm. I always say that to people, like I am a prolific shopper and that makes me good at understanding marketing because the astrology tie-in, I was actually always looking at my horoscope and I started to notice like the rankings were changing on sites of like who was winning and getting the most traffic. So we launched horoscopes on majority.com to drive organic traffic. Cause it meant in SEO, we could rank really high and there was a high search volume totally. for horoscopes. And then we had a Zodiac collection of jewelry. So it all kind of linked together. Um, And then there were a lot of, there was an incredible amount of space for experimentation. So we opened the vault in New York city, which we did in three weeks, which was absolutely insane. And it was in, Oh my gosh, truly actually crazy. It was in um, Chelsea and it was basically designed to be a museum as retail. So there were like three distinct exhibits you could walk through. There was an astrology exhibit, a tarot exhibit, um, and then a diamonds exhibit. And then at the end there was like this beautiful custom built gift shop. And it was just a really different approach back then of submersive retail, which we see a lot of now. But at the time, like doing things differently than a traditional store prior to COVID was just really unheard mm-hmm. of. I want to pause here because every single story you tell is you testing something out and actually being like really yes. good at it. And so I know that doesn't happen by accident. When you think of every new platform, idea, channel, like all of this stuff, how do you filter out what to test? And then what's your framework for making that test worth it? Yeah. So I am really bad at marketing to anybody other than myself. And what I mean by that is Mm. a great example is for Valentine's day. When I first started at Missouri, we piloted a program that was same day delivery in Toronto because we, what you notice around gifting holidays is that men Mm. buy after your final (laughs) ship date. Every time, of course, they're always last. It's always at the last minute. You're always getting emails and customer service being like, Hey, Valentine's day is tomorrow. Can you ship it and get it to me by then? And you're like, unfortunately I can't shift time and space to get a necklace to you in another country by that point. That's on you, man. Yeah. (laughs) Can't help you here. Um, but we were trying to solve for that. So I was trying to figure out, you know, how do you, how do you kind of take that and say like two days before give them a same day delivery or on Valentine's day, give them the same day delivery. But what I really missed is I looked at the behavior of how I look for that information, not how that consumer looks for that information. So I was like, well, we'll send an email, but there weren't many men on our email list, right? It was predominantly women who were on our, our shopping, shopping list. And then we tried social, but that's not really who our audience was. And we tried ads, but it was their first time seeing the brands. They were like, I don't really trust this when we would have had to be educating for months before they would have made that decision to buy something mm. at that price point. So 
the learning really for me is that I'm good at moving fast and testing things when I feel confident in them because I'm excited about it. And I think it's a very understated part of being a leader and an innovator is you have to have a really strong intuition and a gut feeling about something. And if I don't believe in something or I think something is off, I won't launch it. And that is, Mm -hmm. you know, I say it's a gut feeling, but the truth is at Missouri, we launched a new collection every single Monday. So after almost four years, you know, we launched hundreds of collections. So your brain essentially becomes a data warehouse of, okay, I, I know last time we launched gold hoops, it did X. I think we should style it like X and we can expect this revenue. Like it, it almost becomes a data oriented system. Right. And you, you think it's gut, but it's actually experience. Those two things are very intermingled. So I think I've just learned enough at a rapid enough pace because Missouri was moving so fast that you had new learnings every single week from product, but you also had lear- new learnings every single week from marketing campaigns, from performance marketing, what was working and not working. And that focus on failing rapidly and testing rapidly means that there's a ton of things that I couldn't even list to you because I forget about them because we failed and then we moved on to the next things. But the things that hit really hit. And I think it's it's something, again, no one really wants to talk about. Most startups fail, most campaigns fail. So testing a lot before you get to that campaign that really is the strong driver is, is key and, and keeping that mentality, no matter, no matter how large a brand is, is the only mm-hmm. way you actually stay innovative. A lot of what you said here, there's so many good reminders in that, yeah, it takes a lot of at-bats to be successful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, the other part of it is I was really fortunate to work with really talented teams. And I think mm. ultimately the the best part about all of it is like, I was never failing alone. We failed. And there's something yeah. so much more comforting about a collective fail where you all, you know, cheers to it. You make it light, you keep it moving, you take the lesson and having that environment that's really supportive of that is really important. I actually, I have a question. I want to go back to some of the failed startups, Mm -hmm. not because I want to focus on what's (laughs) negative, but because I think it's so valuable for everyone listening to this episode that's questioning, is it the product? Is it the company? Is it me? What's not working? Do I stick it out? Mm -hmm. Do I leave? Walk Walk me through your thought process back then when you're like, I think we just don't have product market fit. But as a marketer, it's like, half of that can be positioning and half of that can be the storytelling. How did you delineate your skills from what the environment was dictating? So uh, first founder is the most important thing at a startup. Okay. And what I learned early is that you need really smart founders who are leading from a place of curiosity and excitement and innovation, not from a place of ego. And I would say that is the main definer of a successful founder and it's become really important to me. It was one of the reasons I you know, went to work at Missouri. It was one of the reasons I decided to go to Merit. Finding that person who has vision, but also has empathy and is a really kind of well-rounded human in terms of how they think is incredibly important. So that's the first thing. I mm-hmm. think product market fit, um, it, it's, it's everything mixed together. So the thing is like my current role, I oversee product development digital and e-commerce customer experience, the whole revenue P&L, retail, creative, marketing. And that's really important because all of those things are the same thought. They're just like different facets of the same thought. So what I tend to have seen happen in my career and what I see happening even at big companies is that product development will work in a silo and they'll get like trend forecasting information. They'll look at, you know, five years from now, this is what we're expecting to see based on Nielsen data. They'll create a product and then they'll hand it to marketing and be like, okay, go market that that's not actually an effective way of building a business because ultimately a good business is built on solving a problem. So 
what was really smart about Missouri and what's really smart about Merit is it comes from actually the whole team coming together and going, okay, here's the customer feedback. Here are the trends. We do look at those. Here's what we as people who are the target for our brand are missing in our routine or in our jewelry. And then mm-hmm. dialing it in from there and having everybody work in lockstep. So previously that rollout of everybody in lockstep was not happening. And I think that's the biggest thing to, to actual product market fit. One of the brands that I worked for specifically had a really great product. It was a deep pressure con- compression vest designed for children with vestibular um, difficulties because it helped them to feel mm. secure. The issue okay. with the product is it was brilliantly made. It was handmade in Vancouver and it cost, I think it was like $360 Canadian. And it was way too expensive for the consumer that needed it. It was completely unaffordable. Mm-hmm. There was no funding available for it. And so the consumer needed it. It was a great product, but couldn't afford it. And we couldn't manufacture it for less because we didn't have the scale or the funding. Mm-hmm. So that's product market fit that isn't even necessarily the product or the story. It's just the economics. And then the handbag charging brand that I worked for was originally manufactured in Italy. And then we were inserting the chargers into it. Our cost of goods was incredibly high because they were handmade in small batches. When we shifted it to China, we ran into all kinds of quality issues. And our initial customers had bought these Italian made bags that were really high quality. Mm. And then we switched production to China. They were a lot lower quality. We were having issues with the tech. The chargers were yelling in the middle of the night. Um, Like they would turn on and say like low battery, but they were speaking in Cantonese. And if you don't speak a language and you hear that in your room in the middle of the night, it's a terrifying experience. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So there were just like technical issues that that just didn't work. So product is so important. And I think the biggest thing that I see today is a rush for more. And what I mean by that is especially beauty brands will just put out as many products as they possibly can. And that's just not necessarily the effective way of A, building trust, B, building legacy products that you actually keep for yeah. you know decades from now. And C, it, it's exhausting for your marketing team. And none of it actually can come from a really holistic, well-thought-through place. So mm-hmm. all of that in terms of learning, one, it was part of the reason I joined Missouri because the product was excellent quality. And that was really compelling to me. Nora had really deep experience in fine jewelry and I really appreciated and trusted that she had that traditional experience, but then was really innovating against it. It's a really rare skill set. And I would say it's the same thing at Merit. I, you know, am so passionate about beauty and really passionate about doing it well. And um, that's absolutely the cornerstone of the brand. Okay. So as we move along your career journey, you've heard about Missouri. Mm -hmm. How did you know it was time to make the leap to something new? And why was it Merit? So I didn't necessarily know right away. Um, I actually started talking to Catherine in September of 2019. So actually quite a while before I shifted. At the time, I was mm-hmm. really, really happy at Missouri. Um, it was an incredible learning experience. I loved my team. I loved what we were building. What I started to see, though, when I was taking a step back is that that team had grown to 300 people. And I had started when there were you know, five of us. And I think what I learned is that my skill set is really an innovation. And what that brand really needed at the time was process, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have, when you're an early stage company, you have a lot of innovators, you have a lot of creators. At a certain stage, you need people with the institutional experience to come in and create process. And that today is still not my skill set. I hire people to do that, but it's incredibly important. Um, And as things became more siloed, as they have to be when you're a bigger brand, I just realized that I truly love sitting on everything and like absorbing it all and putting it all into one story. And actually when I initially talked to Catherine, I was like, I just, I don't, I don't know if the world needs another beauty brand, to be honest. Like Mm. not only were were there all these legacy brands, but at the time, 
Yeah. I mean, I said that in my head to be clear, (laughs) Um, but I, you know, I was like, I was exhausted with the cycle of beauty. And I think, you know, when I went to work every day, I would have a makeup bag that was bigger than my lunch bag. Cause I would spend more time prepping yeah. that when I, than I would spend prepping food. <laughs> and you know, every morning I would put on a full face and I'd put on lipstick and then it would dry out my lips so much. I'd need the Laneige lip mask by like nine 30 AM. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an enjoyable process for me anymore. I felt like it was an obligation, like getting dressed for work. I cannot believe we all used to sit all day in high waisted jeans and leather pants. Like I was always Thank uncomfortable. You. And it was the same thing for beauty. Like my skin was always itchy for my foundation. Like I was never comfortable for hours of the day. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't really want to contribute to that. And then after I, you know, really started talking to Catherine and and her vision and why it was going to be different, it started to really resonate with me and make sense because I was at this point where I was like, you know, I'd gone through the phase of the 10 step Korean skincare routine and thinking Mm -hmm. that I had to use all these products. And then my skin had freaked out from that. Then I'd gone to the dermatologist. Like I'd just been through such beauty warfare (laughs) in my early twenties that I just realized that there was this, I was coming into this place in my life where I was realizing that I was incredibly uncomfortable looking just like myself and realizing mm. probably a lot of women also felt that way. And it was a really interesting time to go, okay, if I could go into beauty, could I be part of a team that does it differently? And that's ultimately why I took the role because I right. you know, flew to LA and met with Catherine and walked through her vision. And what I respected most is she was very in tune with what she's excellent at and where she needs support. She was a very clear communicator. She was very clear. I'd have a lot of autonomy and there were no questions that were off limits. And I really appreciated mm-hmm. that level of honesty, transparency, and self-reflection in a leader. And that's yeah. ultimately why I decided to take it. It was, you know, leaving an incredible team and opportunity that I absolutely loved where I was really fulfilled, but I was frankly a bit burnt out. I needed to try something new and I felt like it was the right challenge and the right next evolution for my mm-hmm. skill set. So I signed my job offer in February, 2020. I gave notice on my apartment to move to LA April 1st and COVID wow. hit March of 2020. Uh, Great timing. <laughs> Just so good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I actually ended up, I didn't have an apartment and I sold all my furniture. And at the time, like in early COVID, you weren't flying anywhere. So I moved oh, in no. to my parents' place in Muskoka where I hadn't lived since I was 17 when I moved out. And started working on Merit remotely. So wow. from for about a year, I essentially, there were a few like major changes. So first I had essentially made myself sick by overwork and burnout. So mm-hmm. when I started at Merit, a lot of my process was like uh, learning how to exercise again, because I hadn't been doing that, oh. learning how mm-hmm. to eat full meals that are nutritious and actually good for you and relearning how to sleep because I was so caffeine dependent. So like not necessarily like fast food, but I was like just eating little bits here and there, like very much a grazer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wasn't taking care of myself at all. I had no work-life boundaries, which is no one's fault except my own because I just hadn't learned to enforce them. So it was a really incredible reset because I got to sit down and one kind of reset my own behavior, but two, it was like this amazing case study time because mm. we were talking about this beauty brand. And at the time it was about on the go streamlined commuting application Sure. And then the world shut down and then we're no commuting. Mm-hmm. And the first two weeks of COVID were fun. We all put on our makeup and we sat at our desks every day and like we baked bread. And then after that, <laughs> you kind of switched to sweatpants and no one was wearing makeup anymore. And it was so interesting to me how rapidly everyone went from full face being fully done up to being comfortable yeah. to work. It was a very quick progression. And as I was talking to my girlfriends, mm-hmm. all of their routines were becoming more and more streamlined. They were like, these are my skincare things. 
these are my makeup things. And for makeup, it was like, I do my brows and I do lip gloss or I do cheek and I do yeah, mascara. Like everyone has a few things. And that really became the foundation for merit and the focus on well-edited essentials. Because as we were looking at positioning, I was going, you know, the gap in the market is actually just being the antidote to the excess that's currently here. Because so true. even during the beginning of COVID, people were still launching products. So like, <laughs> and they didn't make any sense. So like lip kits were coming out every two weeks in different colors and they were super yeah. matte and impossible to wear. And eyeshadow palettes <laughs> were still launching with 50 shades. And like, I worked in beauty and I don't know how to layer 50 shades and I don't know oh, anybody gosh, that actually yeah. uses them all. Like every palette I've ever owned, I use like two shades in the corner that were like matte yeah. and not touched anything And then you else. throw it away when those are gone. Exactly. Yeah. So there was just this really big kind of discrepancy between the products that were being sold and the actual routines of the people we were selling to. So mm-hmm. that's what we wanted to address. And, and minimalist beauty really encapsulated that and, and coming at it, not from a place of judgment, which is also something we did at Missouri. Mm. So I think, you know, Diamonds for Your Damn Self was a really important campaign because it was about changing the narrative that you have to wait to be gifted. At the mm-hmm. same time, gifting is wonderful. If someone wants to buy you a present, that's great. And both of those things can be equally valuable. It's the same thing in makeup. Mm. Doing a full contour, doing a full beat, wanting a full face, that's great. Not wanting that is also great. There's no like mm. shame in either way. But what we felt was that there was a lack of support for busy women, particularly millennials and Gen X, who were looking for really easy to use products. They didn't feel intimidating. They didn't feel like they took up their entire day. And frankly, just happened to be clean because clean as a marketing mechanism, it's, it's kind of insane if you think about it because it should be table stakes that your products are safe. Right. That yeah. actually shouldn't even be a selling point, but it, it's, it's the baseline for us in terms of you know high-performing luxury formulas, making them clean, and then figuring out accessibility. So I... Yeah. have very clear memories of when the Armani foundation came out. It's like face fabric, I think. And I was like, this okay. is incredible. This is so genius. And I was selling it at shoppers and mm-hmm. no one wanted to pay that much. And I remember even the women who did buy it were like, this is my special occasion foundation. And there's something really interesting that I think happened during COVID where we realized most of our special occasions were taken away. And in our positioning and in how we thought about stuff, we wanted that special occasion feel. So something that feels luxurious, that feels like a treat Mm -hmm. for yourself, but at an everyday price point and navigating those Mm -hmm. two things and bringing them together meant that we kept that quality. We kept, you know, the design, every one of our components is custom designed, the thoughtfulness, but we are about 30% below luxury price point. So while it's not necessarily mass, it is as accessible as we can make it while retaining that quality, which was incredibly important for that product market fit story. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So this kind of answered one of my questions. Cause I know, you know, Verst Catherine launched in target, mm-hmm. the who, what, where line got launched in target and Merit's been online and in Sephora. Yeah. So I'm assuming that ties in with that kind of accessible luxury feel as well. Is that why you opted away from target for the distribution strategy? Not necessarily. It was just a little bit of a different, um, approach in terms of customer. So Okay. We, Verst is an amazing brand. It's one of the fastest growing skincare brands globally when it comes to clean and sustainability. Their team is amazing. The products are great. And the focus on that was really wide distribution and accessibility from day one. The focus for Merit was more so about how do you take that same lens of creating really great product, but how do you also present it in a more luxury environment? And Sephora is an incredible partner for that. What they do really Mm -hmm. well is um, one, enabling people to go in and try products on. I, you know, had only done D to C up to the point that I started mm-hmm. at Merit and 
it was an incredible experience on building that retail partnership and figuring out how you exist in that store in a different way. Like our end cap in Sephora, I don't even want to tell you how many revisions that went through to make it feel (laughs) very different and very on brand and very welcoming. And then, you know, my experience in makeup was that Sephora was always a destination that was like a little bit, a little bit of fantasy. So, you know, growing up in a small town, I always read magazines because it felt like it was an escape. And even when I was Mm -hmm. really busy at work, the Sephora on Bloor Street, I used to go to. And when you've had a really long day and you just like want to put headphones in and like play with some products. It was like my, yeah. it was like my piece. So oh my gosh, that's honestly funny. a Sephora run, like once I did my mm-hmm. first Sephora run post COVID, it was like the best day I'd had in a long time. <laughs> its own version of therapy. It really is. And I, you yeah. know, I just go in and try everything and like, you know, there's help if you need it, but there's no pressure. And that environment was really interesting to me to sell into. And I think, you know, ultimately what, what Merit does really well is we really balance the direct to consumer relationship. So building that with our consumer, having a really fast and effective site, having incredible shipping. The Merit Signature Bag is a huge win for us. People absolutely love that bag. And that actually came from my own clumsiness. So I um, I cannot tell you how many makeup bags I've had where a, a product opens in it and it spills and then it's destroyed. Oh. And back yeah. then you would pay like 30 to $40 for a makeup bag and then you actually couldn't put it in the washing machine. So then it, it mm-hmm. just dies. And then I, if you had like the cheaper plastic ones, the zippers always broke. So the way we designed that bag was actually from, from my own experience. So it was like, it has to be fully washable. You have to be able to throw it in the washing machine, not hand wash. Cause I will not do that. It has yeah. to not have any zippers. Cause that's <laughs> the first thing to break. So that's actually where the idea to tie it off came from. Cause it means no hardware, which means it's easier to wash. It'll last a lot longer. And mm-hmm. then we only put them in every first order because the idea really is that you only need one. And we say that from a perspective of we actually invest in them. So they're fairly high quality bags and you can wash it, you can dry it. There's no reason why you'd ever need another. And that from a sustainability perspective was also really important to us. Wow. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that you, it makes sense that you were involved in that, but that's so cool because that is so iconic. You think merit, you automatically think of the bag and the fact that it's functional and beautiful. Yeah. But again, that's just product development from a place of, of solutioning. Right. And I think literally, you know, every single product we've, we've launched, whether it's the minimalist, which Catherine actually came up with from the place of wanting to combine foundation and concealer. She was always doing her makeup in the car and her makeup bag was too big to having something that was in a component that you just apply directly to the skin. So, you know, Mm -hmm. when you have to pump foundation on the back of your hand and then you forget it's there and you spread it everywhere or it gets on your outfit, like to solve for that (laughs) and something that was blendable with fingers or with a brush. So it was really easy and tough to mess up. Like all of the tiny details that make our products great come from the issues that our team runs into. And that's really right. how we've approached it. And it takes a lot longer to make products. We, we are perfectionists. Catherine actually started product development in 2016. We didn't launch until 2021. And every product we make truly takes years to perfect. And I can tell you that the, the lipstick that launched in February, the red colors, there were like 43 rounds of the one red. It's, that level of focus because to us there's really no point in doing it unless you're going to do something that's really different and exciting because we do this for the Mm -hmm. for the love of doing it absolutely especially when like you said there are so many beauty brands like if you want to stand out and you want to create something different I think it takes that level of commitment and also it takes people who are their own target market who can see the problems really well just from their day-to-day experiences yeah and I'd Mm -hmm. say it it leads back my like favorite quote was actually I went to this exhibit at the Met, I think when I was, or MoMA, when I was 15 and I got this Alexander McQueen book. 
And he was talking about how he became really good at what he did because he studied tailoring on, on Seville Row and learned exactly how to tailor traditionally, this really precise skill set of how to do things the right way based on convention. And then mm -hmm. what made him famous was taking that skill set and inverting it on its head, doing something completely different, trying something completely new, taking it and just taking that traditional sense and completely redoing it. And I think oh with beauty, that's how we're also approaching it. We're going with the respect of the tradition of excellent product development and marketing, but also just kind of flipping that entire storyline on its head and looking at it from a much different lens has, has resulted in products that honestly, I think speak for themselves and our legacy products yeah. that we hope stay in people's makeup bags for decades and has resulted in a brand that I, I like to think feels a lot different than most beauty brands. Absolutely. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> You're literally doing what you set out to do. What do you think is a big opportunity that other clean beauty brands might be missing? I, you know, I think what's really incredible in the market right now is the number of clean beauty brands. And I say that from a place of, you know, beauty was a very monopolized market a decade ago. If you really think about Not where I used to ago. buy from. Yeah. yeah. And I think there have been an incredible number of female entrepreneurs that have really changed the way we consume beauty. So I think other clean brands I look at as kind of compatriots in this, this realm of kind of challenging the monopoly of what used to exist. And while I think we all have space to improve, I think there's also space for everybody because everyone's really addressing a different consumer. And I think clean will become table stakes for every single brand. Because if you think of you know, clean, even like seven years ago, I remember going to like health food stores to buy clean beauty and the products were not good. They did not perform. They didn't stay on. I wasn't, the branding was horrible yeah. and think yeah, of how I far that's those. come. Um, so I think really what I look at is how do you start to challenge those legacy brands? How do we really open more space to have brands that are, you know, led by entrepreneurs that have niche markets that are addressing more women and what they're looking for in their beauty needs and that are more inclusive. And ultimately I think, clean beauty brands are, are challenging those standards. And I think, you know, we're all going to continue to evolve and get better at what we do. Great answer. Okay. We're running tight on time. This conversation has just flown by. So let's wrap up with our quick hits and we'll yeah. try to actually keep them quick. Um, <laughs> so we can, so we can wrap this on time. So first one, what trait do you most attribute to your success? Oh, see, this is not a quick answer, but I'll try. Um, one, I was really naive coming into marketing and a lot of what I learned to do was just being learned. So I started learning Facebook ads the year they came out. And what that meant was I was given a really freeing perspective of not having like institutional knowledge to look at, but just inventing and testing. So I think mm. that, that mindset of innovation and challenging what's been done and willing to do things differently is one of them. Yeah. Two, I would, I think speed. I work really quickly. I think really quickly. It's exhausting for people that work with me, but it is really important when you're innovating. But most importantly, honestly, I actually think it's that I, I have a very split skill set, that ability yeah. to do deep storytelling and creation, but also that problem solving ability to drive a P&L on the operational side of the business. And having yeah. those two things come together, I really attribute to much of my success in branding. Question number two is what gives you energy? Oh, um, my morning routine, which has, you know, uh, it's been a war to get that established, but I exercise every yeah. morning. I have one cup of coffee. I go outside and walk my dog. I take my time. And that has really, when I, by the time I sit down at my desk, instead of just, you know, opening my computer in bed, which is what my MO used to be, I am just mm -hmm. in a much better perspective to be productive. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for your younger self? 
Oh, boundaries. Learn how to say no. Learn how to make time for yourself. It's the biggest thing. Work less, have more fun. I, you know, I was actually reading a story that Jen Atkin posted recently and she was saying, you know, if I'd worked 10% less, it wouldn't have impacted my career, but it would have really impacted my personal life. And I really hear that. And then stop letting other people define what you're capable of. I think what's really exciting about, you know, marketing and leadership today and, and even making products is that it's a pretty open book. I think what used to feel pretty opaque is a lot of opportunity and defining what I can do and what I want to do is the biggest thing I tell myself when I'm younger. And, and also, you know, people who are trying to figure out what they want to do in life is there really are no restrictions and no one really knows that much more than you. Yeah. Ayla, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. I feel like, I know I, I say this, but this could have been a five-hour conversation. So maybe a part two is in our future. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, we literally could have just kept talking with her forever. Like there was so much I wanted to keep digging into. So we say this with every guest, but we really do need to have her back for a part two. Like it's just got to happen. Yeah. Someday when we're in LA, now that she lives there, we'll hit her up. But also I'm just obsessed with Merit's products. Like they sent me some stuff last year around their launch, which was so kind. And I love the the foundation stick, I guess it's not really foundation because it's also concealer. So I can't mm-hmm. remember the actual name, but love that obsessed with their lip oil. I was chatting with my friend, Steph, about this. Steph, if you're listening, hi. It is honestly the best product. There's enough pigmentation. It's not sticky at all, which is why I hate wearing lip gloss because my oh, hair wow. always gets stuck in it. And it's moisturizing. Like they're just products are great. Ayla's great. The vibes all around are great. And if this all sounds great to you, I would encourage you to go check out our Instagram at they.get.it because the Merit team and Ayla have been so generous that there may or may not be a giveaway coming your way. And so if you want to participate and maybe try out Merit for yourself, you'll definitely want to go check us out on Instagram. Again, that's they.get.it. Have a great week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Bay Media with technical production by Burke Johnson.